electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now, on last call, the moment all you investors are waiting for, why the stakes just cranked up ahead of NVIDIA's earnings. A Nikki Haley exclusive, the presidential candidate joining us for a must-see interview on the migrant crisis, the border, skyrocketing debt, Boeing, and much more. Sora, shock, Hollywood reacts to open AI's stunning leap forward. Justine Bateman is here. Strange times, strange bedfellows, two streaming rivals, maybe looking to date. Plus, the return of our exclusive insider buying segment. There's been a lot of action inside the C-suite. And if it's Friday, make it Suntory time. The Japanese beverage giant bringing a big new offering to America. And its CEO will join us live. So, belly up with Suntory or whatever you want. And buckle up, because last call is up right now. All right. Happy Friday, everybody. Good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. All that and more coming up across the hour. But first up on Last Call, meme mania returns to Wall Street. Traders once again plowing into high-flying names that we are now labeling. Cue the fake A-team music. I like it. SWAT. It is an acronym that we just made up completely out of thin air. I mean, just completely out of thin air. The S is for Super Microcomputer, SMCI. It got, by the way, got destroyed today after already nearly tripling this year. W is for Wingstop, shares doing something that chickens cannot themselves do. Fly, up 24% this year. The A is for, not the A team, it's for Abercrombie & Fitch, the red-hot teen retailer making investors 37% this year. And finally, the T, not for Mr. T, it is for Texas Roadhouse, ticker TXRH, shares sizzling up 10% today, 21% this year, and doubling in just two years. You did not ask for another acronym, but you're getting one anyway. It is called SWAT. Now, we have no idea where these company stocks are going to go in the future. They could keep going up. They could rebound like SMCI, but... I did try to give you a little touch of historical warning on X last night. I posted a picture of me in like my dad's jacket at the NASDAQ in the year 2000 covering the peak of the tech bubble. Bunch of stocks behind me at three and four hundred bucks that don't trade anymore. Go check it out. The lesson I was trying to impart was that stocks cannot and will not go up forever. And today, sadly for many investors or traders in super micro, they and found out. Shares crashing, $200. 200 today, although they're up a little bit, about 22 bucks after hours, it was a wipeout. So let's talk about this so-called meme stock mania, part two, which kind of reminds us of the GameStop and AMC and Reddit, the dumb money days, and get some historical context with not only Investopedia editor-in-chief Caleb Silver, but a gentleman who led our basketball team when we worked together to the New York Urban Professionals title, my man, I was terrible. And we worked together. 
uh, a lifetime ago during the first internet bubble. And that's kind of why I tried to post that picture. You guys have done a great job during all the meme stock stuff. Are you seeing any similarities between either one? Yeah, some of them are bubbling up, unfortunately, which is maybe the irrational exuberance behind a lot of these stocks. Now, some of them have good stories. SMCI, their super microcomputer, they're making servers, leaning heavily into AI. Does that mean the stock should be where it is? The CEO now worth $7.8 billion, so big pullback today. Some of these others, though, sounds like a little bit of a return, not to the 90s, Brian, maybe the 80s. Roadhouse, a little Patrick Swayze going on there. They're remaking Aber- that movie, by the way. Absolutely. With Jake can't, Gyllenhaal. Can't wait. That's sacrilege. Abercrombie and Fitch, that's very 80s. My teenage girls. Cute shirtless models. Baggy jerk. Well, they've they've, they've cleaned up their act. That was in the 90s, though. That's what I'm trying to point out. They're coming back. So a lot of this is that. And as the great Jimmy Cliff would say, the harder they come, the harder they fall for some of these. And you just have to look back, not just to the 1999s, early 2000s, but three years ago when meme stock mania peaked coming out of COVID, right? February 12, 2021, vaccines were rolling out, and that was the top for so many meme stocks, and they have fallen mightily since. Okay, Jimmy Cliff, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll come back with you with the toots and the maytals, right? SMCI had a pressure drop today. Oh. You like what I just did there? And, and, and listen, it's, it's, don't want to make light of it because a lot of people got crushed, especially if they're messing around in the options world. You guys do a, as good a job as anybody at seeing what people are looking for. What are they looking for? What are they trying to learn? Yeah, what's interesting is they're not necessarily looking for fast money. So a lot of the money going into these stocks doesn't necessarily feel like that retail flood that we saw back in 20, 2021. People are still being cautious, more optimistic than they've been in a long time, but also still looking to protect themselves because I think a lot of people don't necessarily believe the rally. Maybe the air is getting thin up here at these new higher highs Mm -hmm. because it has been driven by just a few stocks. So a cautious optimism But usually you get that when things start to fall apart a little bit. And what we're seeing right now is a little drumbeat of this just might not hold up, especially for some of these stocks. I feel like to your point earlier, Caleb, sorry, these are names that in the meme stop AMC, it's a movie theater chain. okay? but they were closed down. It was a reopening trade. They bought a gold mine. GameStop, a retailer, some thought would go out of business. SMCI has got a huge business, a real business, to your point. NVIDIA loves them. Their servers apparently remain cooler. Texas Roadhouse, people tell me it's fantastic. They're packed. Every time you got to get there at like four o'clock to eat by six o'clock. I mean, ANF, somebody's got to win the retail world. Not everybody can go out of business. So I do feel like this is a little different than two years ago. It is. And there's other differences that are super important that your viewers should recognize here. Okay. These stocks are not necessarily heavily shorted. They are not on the top of the most shorted stocks list. That's interesting because back in 2020, 2021, there was a backlash against those short stops. These are not heavily hyped on Reddit. I was all over Wall Street bets today. Not a lot of conversation around any of these stocks. Modest trading volume. We're not seeing a surge in trading volume, just a steady drumbeat higher. Now, higher than usual, especially as these stocks ascend. But it's nothing like we saw three years ago. And a lot of these, Brian, are heavily owned by institutions, institutional investors that we a lot of us have our mutual funds with or our 401ks. Heavy institutional ownership here. This is not a huge retail flood of traders trying to pump these stocks up and get out. But there might be some activity there, which is why you're seeing those extra percentages higher. The question is, how long can this last? And the first person out the door, it might be the person that you know, makes that bag. The rest of the people are going to see what happened three years ago when these stocks fell out. Well, three of the four did well in our SWAT. Unfortunately, super micro. A lot of people got burned on that today. But important historical context, maybe not. 
like it was two years ago. I love the stat about not heavily shorted. That's really interesting. But that's what you do, Caleb. That's what we do. That's what you do. You're a good point guard, too. That's right. Caleb, I, I distribute. You distribute. Not to me. I never got the ball because I wouldn't have been able to score if I had it. Caleb Silver of Investopedia. Great stuff. Thank you very much. SWAT. All right, now to the overall markets and your money. Not a great Friday. Declines across the board. NASDAQ down under just 1%. And with that, we end the market's five-week winning streak. On to your stud and dud du jour. The big winner of the day, Applied Materials, up 6%. Yeah, what else? AI-related growth there. The big decliner, Digital Realty Trust, and earnings miss sent that stock down 8%. Very quick check on future super thinly traded. Remember, Monday, President's Day, it's a holiday. We're off. You're off, hopefully. The markets are off on Monday. Up next, the moment that will likely make or break the market's next move. A top tech investor tells you what to do with your money ahead of NVIDIA's earnings. Plus, a last call exclusive with Nikki Haley on a disturbing new milestone for America's debt, the migrant crisis cost, and much, much more. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, now to tomorrow's news tonight. First up, billionaire investor Carl Icahn winning two seats on JetBlue's board. The decision coming less than a week after Icahn disclosed his nearly 10% stake in the airline. The general counsel of Icahn Enterprises, Jesse Lin, and Icahn Capital Portfolio Manager Stephen Miller are the two new directors joining JetBlue's board. Shares getting a bit of a pop on the news and after I was trading up just about 2.5%. All right, next up, investors everywhere holding their breath on NVIDIA. The chipmaker reports fourth quarter earnings this coming Wednesday. Four days, 21 hours, seven. Yeah, we got a clock. We got a countdown clock for NVIDIA earnings. Rest assured, we're going to have all the details right here on Last Call that night. But let's look ahead. Will those numbers bring new fuel to the record run for stocks or completely kneecap it? Investment bank Loop Capital appears to think it is the former, setting a street price target high of $1,200 per NVIDIA share. That, my friends, 65% more upside from today's close. Let's talk about NVIDIA and what it might mean for the macro market and, and why it could be undervalued. And bring in RSE Venture CEO Matt Higgins. Matt, make the case for NVIDIA undervalued. I'm still laughing at your account hand clock and Loop I Capital, know. which might rename itself Loopy Capital because that's a little bit out there. But, you know, let me make the case. One, it's trading at approximately you know, 30 times forward. Earnings. I think we're still in uh, the early days of the AI boom. You look at some recent stats showing that the projected CAGR of investment in generative AI is about 80%. So the bottom line is NVIDIA has a, a iron grip hold on this market, will for the foreseeable future. And so at the same time, I do think if you're looking at this as a catalyst, earnings, they'll probably beat, they always seem to beat. 
But if you look at how the stock traded after the last earnings report, it actually went sideways for uh, all the way until January 5th. And then, boom, it took off like a rocket ship and it's up 45 percent. So I think NVIDIA has morphed into something that you play around earnings into something that you tuck away and you buy and hold and you own for the duration. Yeah, listen, if, if we made a countdown clock, it's got to be important. OK, let's just let's just throw that right out there. And so I but I would agree with the, the countdown clock because I know this, Matt, NVIDIA is more than just the company you described. NVIDIA has become symbolic of the AI boom, massive parts of the market. We just talked about SMCI, which is soaring until today anyway, and still way up off the NVIDIA sort of vapor trail, if you want to. Don't you, you have to agree that NVIDIA matters to the overall market? No, NVIDIA definitely matters. I mean, NVIDIA is now an ecosystem play, right? Which is what, why it's such a special company. You could try to dismiss it and say, is this Cisco? It's not Cisco of the 1990s. It's an ecosystem. And it, it matters for a very kind of nuanced reason. And that when you look at the, some of the, the headwinds that I think are coming in the economy, I still agree with Citibank calling a recession in the middle of the year. The way out of this recession is going to be the productivity gains we get out of uh, out of AI. And uh, there's some projections that will add you know, 15 percent of GDP by 2030. That means job growth. So actually, the better NVIDIA does, so goes NVIDIA, so goes the country. And so it basically is a leading indicator of how real AI is. And so, yes, for sure, the earnings is an, is an important event. I just think I think the $800 price target by the, uh, the end of the year is a no-brainer. I just don't think it happens overnight. Yeah, and, and this is kind of what happens, in all due respect to all analysts out there, you know, Matt, they trip over themselves sometimes to make the highest number or the lowest number because – it gets the attention. What do you make quickly of what happened to Supermicro today? I tried to post kind of a, a veiled historical word of caution by showing the peak of the Internet bubble on Twitter last night. The stock dropped $200 today, Matt. Yeah, it's a little silly. I hate that meme stock stuff as it pertains to AI because then it makes people not pay attention to the to the main event. Honestly, what I'm more interested in is actually copy trading uh, NVIDIA. They have a basket of stocks that they've invested in, five of them. So I'm playing uh, RxRx, which is all about uh, inventing uh, new medicines. But I, I get very uncomfortable when I see those kind of runs. I think people just get up, get hurt. I think a lot of people got uncomfortable today. Matt Higgins, you have a great long weekend. Appreciate it. All right. On deck, a can't-miss exclusive with Nikki Haley on America's skyrocketing debt, the migrant crisis, Boeing, and more. That is next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. Time for another big interview here on Last Call. And we will start with a new focus on a story that we have been following closely, the economic cost of the immigration crisis in America. Last night, we spoke with S&P Global and highlighted in a nonpartisan report how the billions of dollars required to help with the problem may not only force cities like New York, Chicago and Denver to cut essential services like fire departments or health care, but, but that could also lead to credit rating downgrades, raising borrowing costs for these cities even more. This is a bipartisan issue. According to the latest polling out of Pew Research, 80% of Americans say the government is doing a bad job at handling the situation at the southern border. And the data is really eye-opening about the extent of the crisis. 
Last fiscal year, the hardworking men and women of the Border Patrol recorded about 3.2 million encounters, almost all at the southern border. This year already, we were on pace for nearly 4 million. That is up from an average of about 400,000 per year for most of the decade between 2010 and 2020, a nearly 10-fold increase. The question now is, how can this crisis be solved? Joining us now is former U.N. ambassador, former South Carolina governor and 2024 presidential candidate Nikki Haley. Uh, Nikki, Ambassador Haley, it's great to have you back on the program. Um, I want to I want to start with the numbers here, because to put it in context for our viewers, New York City estimates it will spend about four to five billion per year on the migrant crisis. That is more than the entire annual budget of the city where you are right now, San Antonio, Texas, a city of one and a half million people. It is simply unsustainable economically, but what do we do? You're exactly right. Unsustainable economically, but it's also a massive national security threat. I think you have to look at the fact that eight and a half million illegal immigrants have come across that border. We've had more fentanyl cross the border last year that would kill every single American. Number one cause of death for adults 18 to 45, fentanyl. And don't think for a second China doesn't know what they're doing when they send it over. When I was governor, we passed the toughest illegal immigration law in the country. President Obama sued us over it, and we won. We need to take what we did in South Carolina and go national with it. We need a national E-Verify program that requires every business to prove that the people they hire are in this country legally. We need to defund sanctuary cities once and for all. We need to put 25,000 Border Patrol and ICE agents on the ground and let them do their job. We need to go back to the Remain in Mexico policy so that no one steps foot on U.S. soil. And instead of catch and release, we need to go to catch and deport. We cannot continue to do this. We've got to secure the border. No more excuses. No, no more time to wait. Well, you say defund sanctuary cities. I mean, I'm across the river from New York City, obviously. They've got a lot of problems. And I know people will look at the politics of Chicago and New York and Denver and other places and say, well, you said you were a sanctuary city. This is what you get. But is defunding the right answer? Because I'm not sure that a potential bankruptcy of New York City is ideal for anybody. It is the right answer, and the reason it's the right answer is as long as we have sanctuary cities, that is an incentive for illegal immigrants to want to come because they know there are safe havens. We have to stop the incentives of them coming in the first place. I mean, if you go and you look at the fact that Biden just approved half a million the temporary protective status of half a million Venezuelans. That's half a million social security numbers. That's half a million driver's licenses. When I was at the UN, I saw exactly what happens when that happens. It basically means that they're going to call their families and say, come on over. We have to stop the incentive and defunding sanctuary cities is part of that. And look, these sanctuary cities can't afford it. You look in New York City, look at the veterans that are being thrown out to allow the illegal immigrants to go in. Look at the fact that none of these people are being vetted right now. There's a better way. The better way is to fix your legal immigration system. It is not allow, allowing people to cut the line and come in illegally when we don't know who they are, where they're from, or what they're capable of. And it's more than 100 nations. You yourself are the daughter of immigrants. Your parents were from India. They went to Canada. Then they came to South Carolina. So obviously, you must be pro-immigration. So what is, what is the right way to do this? And what do we do about the, to your point, millions 
who have already come across the border the last couple of years. Your opponent is calling for mass deportation. I don't know if that's logistically possible or humane. Well, I think the first thing you have to look at is my parents came here legally. They put in the time, they put in the price. They are offended by what's happening on the border. My mom used to always say, if they don't follow the laws to come to this country, they won't follow the laws when they live in this country. And I think we have to see that for what it is. But I think the other side of that is we have to look at the fact that if we're going to take this on, look at what happened last week. You had a border bill come down. Now, the one part of the bill was good. It strengthened the asylum laws. We need to do that. Three million came under Trump's watch because the asylum laws weren't strong enough. But the weak side was it didn't include remain in Mexico, which is important. And it had a 5,000 person threshold. We can't allow thresholds. We need to stop this from the very first person. The problem is Congress should have come in and not left until they figured it out. Why did they go home for two weeks? That's unacceptable. They need to get the job done. But the other side was that President Trump went and said, don't pass anything until after the general election. We can't wait that long. This is a national security threat. Congress needs to get in there, do their job, do it right, and then well, make sure that we can be, feel more safe. I tweeted out, X'd out, whatever you want to call it, Nikki, a, a U.N. report. It's the United Nations report. They estimate 10 percent more people from Venezuela. You know, I, let's be clear. Venezuela, one of the formerly richest countries, not only in South America, but in the world, is a failed nation state. They're encouraging people to leave. The U.N. sees more, 10 percent more coming this year than last year. And, and noted something that, that I was not aware of, that the U.S. government is sponsoring or funding centers in various Central American cities to help the migrants on their journey. That's great from a humanitarian perspective. There's women, there's children, there's people that are just looking for a better life. But is that the right thing for the U.S. to be funding? You know, the right thing for the U.S. to do is go to the place of origin. Now, you look at Venezuela and look at what Biden is doing. Biden is trying to loosen the sanctions. He's trying to buy oil from them. That's not the way you handle that. I stood on the Simon Bolivar Bridge and watched thousands of Venezuelans walk for hours in the hot sun to go into Colombia to take, have the one meal they might get that day. Mm -hmm. At that point, they were killing zoo animals for food. They were fleeing socialism, begging for freedom. But the reality is we need to make sure that we're going to these places of origin, holding them accountable. But we can't go and take people if we can't properly vet them. That's the biggest issue. We've got a lot of people coming from Afghanistan, from Yemen. We know that Hamas is trying to come over. You see thousands of people now, the Palestinians and, mm -hmm. and Chinese that are coming over. If we don't know who they are, we don't need to do that. But look at what this is doing on small businesses and American families. Our taxpayers are having to pay to educate them, to take care of them in hospitals, for law enforcement to have to deal with them. We can't afford the burden of that, especially when we don't but know who they are. Nikki, can we also not afford it in some ways because, and I don't want to sound crass about this as well, but let's be clear. A lot of these people, these first-generation immigrants, are doing the hard jobs that a lot of Americans simply do not want to do. Period. Hard stop. They're the ones sweating it out in the hot sun and putting in the work while a lot of people say, I'm not going to do that. And, and that's the reality of our broken immigration system.
Well, first, we need to remember we're a country of laws. The second we stop being a country of laws, we give up everything this country was founded on. But when it comes to legal immigration, it is a broken system. It should not take someone 10 years to become a citizen. We can do both at the same time, secure our border mm -hmm. and fix our legal immigration system. But the way we fix our le legal immigration system is allow people to come based on merit. Those we need to look and see what is it that our small businesses and companies need and have people come based on that. And then instead of just allowing certain numbers, look at what we can't get yeah. already. Then you can do that. That way it builds our economy, it strengthens our country, and it's done in a logical way. You don't just allow people to come in for the sake of coming in. Yeah, you said there was enough fentanyl to kill every American. Actually, the Border Patrol last year confiscated enough to kill six billion people. Basically, the entire planet with fatal doses of fentanyl. It's terrifying stuff. Um, also, Nikki, we've gotten now to the point where interest on U.S. national debt is going to be more than our entire defense budget. We're going to spend more paying interest on debt than we are to fund our military. A lot of that debt, by the way, that those interest payments, they go to pension funds. I get it. They go to retirees. We get it. But a lot of it also goes to foreign countries, and it makes rich people richer. But is there anything we can do about the national debt? Because the minute you start talking about cutting funding, people are going to come out in the media and say, you're trying to kill grandma. We have to do something about the national debt. You look at the fact we're $34 trillion in debt. We're having to borrow money just to make our interest payments. China owns some of that debt. And look at the fact that $8 trillion of that debt came in the last four, just came in four years of the Trump administration. It is unsustainable for us to do that. And the problem is with Republicans and Democrats who are spending like drunken sailors. They are <laughs> raiding Social Security. They're spending for port projects. They're doing all of this without any value of a taxpayer dollar. So the first thing I think we need to do is claw back the $100 billion of unspent COVID dollars that are out there. Instead of 87,000 IRS agents going after middle America, go after the hundreds of billions of dollars of COVID fraud, one out of every $7 was spent fraudulently. If 8% of our budget is interest, quit borrowing, cut up the credit cards. Families have to balance their own budgets. I had to balance a budget as governor. Why is Congress the only group that refuses to balance a budget? We'll stop the spending, we'll stop the borrowing, we'll eliminate the pet projects, and I'll veto any spending bill that doesn't take us back to pre-COVID levels. Then we're gonna take as many federal programs as we can, and send them down to the states. That will dramatically reduce the size of the federal government, but it will empower people on the ground. Think education, think healthcare, think welfare, think mental health. When you cut those strings and allow states to customize that to better help their yeah. people, that's when you're starting to go into something that's more effective as opposed to Washington bureaucrats handling that money. I would say that you don't want to offend drunken sailors because drunken sailors, Nikki, have a budget. They at least know how much they can spend. I, I will say that's that. That's exactly right. I mean, they, they do. But, but he, again, you get my point about whenever you talk about cutting something, all of a sudden raises all these things. Here, here's another issue. Insurance. OK, the inflation rate is coming down, but insurance, housing, cars, everything is out of control. People are coming at me saying I'm paying 40% more over a year if I can get the insurance and nothing has changed. Is there anything to do about the insurance? And by the way, the insurance companies and we're, we're CNBC are just printing money. 
Well, first, we have to, you know, if you're going to fix something, you have to know how you got into that situation in the first place. The fact that Trump started this stimulus situation and the Republicans and Democrats both bought into it, think they did that $2.2 trillion COVID stimulus bill with no accountability. They expanded welfare that's now left us with 80 million Americans on Medicaid, 42 million Americans on food stamps. That's a third of our country. And so you look at how they got there. They never should have flushed the system with all that cash in the first place. That's what caused everything to go up. But the best ways for us to deal with it is let's look at our mm -hmm. energy sector. Let's let's completely turn our energy sector into an economic powerhouse. Would you right reverse now, the, the pause? EPA cares? Would you I, I, I cover energy Ab for CNBC? Would you reverse that LNG export pause that they're talking about? Absolutely. We should be exporting as much liquefied natural gas as we can. We should get the EPA out of the way. We should speed up the permitting. We should start the pipelines, including the Keystone Pipeline. We should do nuclear power. We should turn that into an economic powerhouse. That will bring down inflation. That will pay down our debt. And it will make us more nationally. Yeah. Um, it will improve our national security. Huge importance that we do that. Non-presidential race question. But we are CNBC, Nikki, so we got to throw this one out there. You were on the board of Boeing. You left. You didn't like the fact that they were going after a bailout in 2020. You saw what has happened now with the 737 MAX. Do you think that David Calhoun, who, by the way, I, I know personally, David Calhoun is the right person for the job at Boeing? You know, I'll first say that Boeing is a, a great American company that I love dearly. I've you know, helped stand up that company in South Carolina when they first came over. They employ 8,000 South Carolinians that we're so proud of. And I know how hard they work. I walked away from it because I've never supported a corporate bailout. That's just not um, what I believe it to be. But I will tell you, I'm a massive cheerleader of Boeing. I want them to do well. They, you know, help us with our military in terms of our um, planes. They help us with the commercial airlines in terms of how we travel. We should all be mm -hmm. rooting for their success. And I will continue to root should for we, their success. Should we root for Dave? As CEO. I wish Dave well. You know, I wish Dave well. I think Dave is a worker. Um, he knows he has a love for Boeing. He really wants to see it do well. And I'm I'm sure Dave and the board are feeling a lot of pressure right now. But I fully expect them to pull out of this and do what they need to to get the company back on track. Nikki Haley, once again, joining us on CNBC. We really appreciate it. I know we talk a lot of things that probably questions, Nikki, I'm guessing you don't get a lot of other places, correct? But I love that. It's the accountant in me. That's the part that I love is, you know, when you can start to look at, at, at numbers, accountants are problem solvers. Mm -hmm. We like to dig into the solutions. That's why we need an accountant in the White House. So I hope everybody will go to NikkiHaley.com and join us. Two sides to every balance sheet. Started as a bookkeeper at age 12. Nikki Haley, appreciate you joining us on CNBC. Good luck. Take care. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. All right, coming up, a potential union between potential between two streaming giants that almost nobody saw coming. All right, happy Friday, and it is because your exclusive insider buying segment is back. Remember, this goes dark for just over a month during earnings season because insiders cannot buy stock, so there's no segment to do. Reminder, these are not stock buybacks, but high-level executives dropping their own money on their own stock. And as always, the info comes with our thanks to Verity Data. Let's count down this week's top five to one at number five. Hillenbrand, a $512,000 buy by the CFO, 
This is a continuation of a buying pattern by him and other executives. Number four, Everest Group. Four buyers in total coming in at $600,000. This is the highest quarterly participation ever at the insurance company. It is a very rare multi-insider buy. Number three, Rockwell Automation, ROK, just under $1 million buy by the CEO. This is not only the CEO's first insider buy, but the biggest ever at Rockwell. Stock two, VF Corp, (laughs) been in the news a lot lately. CEO stepping up, buying a million dollars worth, his first ever insider buy, following that stock getting hammered after earnings. But the biggest insider buy this week is bigger than all those combined. It is a $15 million buy by the chairman of Aon. Verity Data notes the chair has a very strong insider buying record and usually comes in on weakness and sells into strength. So there you go. The names this week, Hillenbrand, Everest Group, Rockwell, VF Corp, and Aon. Take note, two insurance-related names in there, Aon and Everest. We're going to bring you this for the next couple of weeks, and it's a segment you will only see right here on Last Call and CNBC Pro later on today. All right, let's talk streaming. Paramount reportedly in talks with our parent company, Comcast, to form a streaming partnership between Paramount Plus and Peacock. The move could mean cost savings for the two companies. Its consolidation seems to be a trend in streaming. Just last week, Fox, Disney, and Warner Brothers announced a joint sports streaming app. So what could this mean if indeed it happens at all? Joining us now for our Friday segment, Needham & Company Managing Director and Senior Internet and Media Analyst, Laura Martin. I don't know why you agree to do this on a Friday out west, but we appreciate it, Laura. Thank you. Is this just sort of two suitors who feel left out of the other three wanting to get involved? You know, I think two things are going on. I think the first thing it tells you with all these JVs and streaming is that business people are problem solvers, apparently like accountants, according to Nikki Haley. And they really need to get bigger and they really need to consolidate and the regulators won't let them buy each other. So doing these JVs, whether it's the ESPN JV with Warner Brothers and Fox, or whether it's these two companies getting together and created a sports bundle, um, these these streamers need to get larger and they don't think they can buy each other. Do you think this this could happen or is this just the usual media sort of chatter? So I think so you saw that the regulators are going to take a look at the ESPN Fox Warner Brothers contract, the joint venture agreement after they sign it. I think if that gets done, this one gets done. And I think if this one gets done, the other guys have to figure out a way to get it done, because anybody that pulls a little ahead and creates competitive advantage the rest of the uh, the rest of the streamers have to have a response, a competitive response well, to that. You, you've told us in past segments, that, Laura, that, that Paramount Plus absent some miracles and big, big trouble. So, I mean, they're they're probably exploring everything. I agree with that, Brian. Both these services, Peacock and Paramount Plus, are too small to compete against Amazon Prime video. Um, and so they need to be bulkier. But and they, that means they're losing the most money. And the nice thing that Comcast has is it's equally small. Peacock's equally small, but it has sister subsidiaries that have cash that can back themselves. So all of these companies need to get big enough, but they need to not run afoul of regulatory oversight. We, we also, Peacock, NBC, us, NBC, have, have great uncle Comcast, who we love very dearly, by the way, because the size and scope there. What does Paramount have? They just laid off. Paramount just laid off eight hundred people, including many high-ranking on-air and off-air reporters and producers, et cetera, at CBS. 
Yeah, a- after a world record-setting Super Bowl where they made $700 million in a single game because of the overtime quarter. So, I mean, it's sort of shocking that they're laying off people the week after the biggest uh, television event in history. Yeah, it, the timing arguably not great. I, I'm just shocked at the magnitude. We know the industry's slowing. Are you surprised at the magnitude of the speed? Um. You know, I think what we're seeing is with digital with digital alternatives coming into competing with linear TV, digital alternatives have much more of a performance um, basis. And basically, advertisers yep. are getting addicted to spending a dollar on ad and getting an outcome. And Amazon gives them that in spades or Amazon Prime Video, really. So I think the world is moving increasingly to performance, which actually makes linear TV ads look less effective. Mm. Any good news? Laura Martin and Needham, thank you. The good news is you were on. Laura, thank you. Thank you very much, Brian. All right, coming up, we'll stay on media. And that cute little monkey in the red hat there may be Hollywood's worst nightmare. Why alarm bells are blaring from artificial intelligence. Justine Bateman up on that next. All right, a bonus tomorrow's news tonight for you. OpenAI has just completed a deal valuing the company at $80 billion, according to the New York Times. That means, my friends, that OpenAI's valuation has tripled in less than 10 months. Tripled in 10 months. The news comes as OpenAI's newest tool, Sora, making huge waves across tech and media. But as OpenAI prepares to release this game-changing tool Where exactly does Hollywood fit in? Remember, actors and writers spent months on strike fighting for safeguards against AI. What does this mean? By the way, the image on the right, the man with the glasses, that is completely fake. It is completely invented. That image on the right, completely fake. For more, let's bring in director, writer, and producer Justine Bateman, who really led the charge about AI during those summer months and the strike. We showed a lot of these images, Justine. Welcome back to the show yesterday. uh, And we immediately thought, the heck is this going to mean for Hollywood? Well, like I started saying about a year ago, um, there's a series of things that are going to occur. And if people go to uh, credo23.com slash AI in film, they can see the list of things and you can start checking things off. Yeah, that's fake. It's not, you know, it's beyond fake. That is an amalgamation of a bunch of images and footage that they stole from artists. Plain and simple, generative AI is complete and utter theft. And it's being used by people who are trying to increase their profit margins and get rid of the overhead of using humans. So you're suggesting, and guys, can we run that? I don't know if we could run the video. We showed some some fake pirate ships, some AI-generated pirate ships meant to kind of look like a, there we go, that's it. So what you're suggesting, Justine, I think, is that these images of the pirate ships or a guy reading a book or a a monkey are actually just aggregated from real things that AI has scraped, and thus in that way they are, in a sense, stealing. I'm not implying it. It's fact. Generative AI doesn't function without consuming a bunch of material, a bunch of data. So you want to do uh, write a book, you got, it's got to consume a bunch of books. And it's like putting it into a blender and it chops it up and gives you a Frankenstein spoonful based on your prompt. So all the films that have ever been done, all the books that have ever been written, uh, all the music that's ever been made, that's all put in there. 
every video you guys ever posted online of your family, uh, all the pictures, all the all the legal work that any anybody's done in a law office. Mm -hmm. It's all put into these blenders and spits this out. So this is complete theft and it's being perpetrated by people who want to just make a lot of money and not have to pay any, you know, labor overhead. If I if I was if I was one of those people, Justine, I was thinking about this before the interview. I would create movies. I'd buy the rights to like Errol Flynn, right? Or any of these famous actors, Marilyn Monroe, and I would just make a bunch of new movies using their images and their voice because no matter what I paid for those rights, it's going to be less than than paying for Brad Pitt. That's right. And Brad Pitt can, if he wanted to, lease himself out at any age. Um, so yeah, the, the, there are these companies uh, that are already ramped up to do that. Absolutely, 100%. And if you, and again, you go to credo23.com slash AI and film, you can see that on the list. I am, um, I'm, actually, I'm actually looking at it now. And you talked about, I think it's Arnold Schwarzenegger on Judy Garland's body. That's not the image I wanna look at, Justine. Well, that's an example of the face replacement that they will enable for consumers. Uh, you'll be able to say, put mm -hmm. my face on Judy Garland's body tonight. So there'll be gonna, there's going to be a lot of licensing by these companies of old films to just do face replacement on. And, you know, there's people are going to be into the novelty. But, you know, on the yeah. other side of this, people are eventually going to get sick of this. And it'll, it will have infiltrated... Right so many other parts of their lives too, that they'll want something real. And that's I hope. where I my hope, work. I hope in. people still matter. Justine Bateman, great to have you on an important topic because things are moving at light speed. Justine, have a great weekend. Thank you. All right, coming up, they make some of the best whiskey in the world, but now Japanese beverage giant Suntory has a bold new offering coming to the US. We're gonna show it to you and we might even take a sip ourselves next. There are some notable names of black CEOs in the Fortune 500, including TIAA chief Tashunda Brown Duckett, Marvin Ellison at Lowe's, and the latest edition of Tony Towns Whitley, who joined Science Application International Corporation in October. They're among the eight CEOs in the Fortune 500 who are black. That's less than 2% of the list. Still, it's a record number. Celebrating black heritage, I'm Sharon Epperson. Friday night, at least on the East, and many of you are probably watching us with a drink in hand. That's great, because it is time for our Booze You Can Use segment. Tonight, we are focusing on Suntory. You might know them for their Japanese whiskey and spirits, but did you know they also own great brands like Jim Beam and Maker's Mark? But now Suntory is introducing a new drink to America. It is called Minus 196. It is a ready-to-drink vodka beverage that comes in flavors like peach, lemon, and grapefruit. And Suntory announced today that it is expanding the brand across the world. It'll be available here in the U.S. in 21 states by the end of the month. And joining us now is Suntory CEO Tak Ninami. Thank you very much, Takeshi. I appreciate you want to be going as Tak, so thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, why this drink? Why now? The first off and the foremost is the, uh, the huge trend of the Gen Z who is not uh, drinking uh, alcohol, just like uh, other generations. 
And the uh, second thing is the health consciousness. So uh, we have the uh, technology and the capabilities in this space. We've been uh, working on this segment for more than uh, 30, 40 years in Japan and Asia. So why not uh, making use of the skill sets to the United States? And, and what I love about this as a part-time Wisconsin resident is that the, the minus 196 is canned in Wisconsin. It's actually created in Japan, but canned in Wisconsin. So I would imagine there's also a jobs and economic angle that you're bringing to the United States, Doc. That's right. I would like to contribute to society of the United States by increasing the number of jobs as well. And uh, social context is so important for us. Again, uh, some people uh, nowadays started to say, uh, not drinking a lot, but uh, then why not uh, the uh, uh, far less uh, alcohol content and uh, perhaps uh, uh, non-alcohol drinks. So we are working on it. Yeah, and, and I'm working because it's it's almost 8 p.m. here. I know that it's morning there, so I'm not going to ask you to uh, cheers with me or kampai, as they may say. Mm. Uh, but I had a, I, I couldn't. It's Friday. I had to pour a little bit of the uh, Yamazaki. I, I don't know if you can see it. I, I stole a glass <laughs> off my coworker Contessa Brewer's desk that she had her right, earrings right, in. Right <laughs> and this the Yamazaki, because you, your whiskeys, uh, Hibiki Yamazaki, are, are – not only considered some of the best in the world, but have won awards saying they are some of the best in the world. That's right. Exactly. You're right. How do they like it? Well, I've had it before and I've got to be careful with it, but man, that's good. <laughs> Hopefully you, you drink a lot more than that now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, before the show would have made a better show, I think, Takashi. I, I got to ask you this, okay? Outside of your own business, uh, we're watching... The Japanese, the Nikkei 225, just soar. Here in America, we're like, amazing. The Japanese economy is kind of stagnant, but the, the, the stock market is going crazy. I know you are a privately held company, but what are things really like over there? Well, one key thing is that the landscape of Japan's economy has totally changed from a deflationary spiral to um, moderate inflation. Plus, uh, huge labor shortages. That is pushing our economy to increase wages. And secondly, I would like to address mm -hmm. is the corporate governance, which is guided by the target stock exchange. So, Takeshi, we got to end so it there, important. my friend. The show is ending. I apologize. Gomenasai. Arigato gozaimasu. Thank you very much, folks. We'll see you on Tuesday. Have a great weekend. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.